0: Hey, everybody. Uh, good evening. My name is Shannon O'Shea, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, hey, Shannon. Smart, o. Oh, yeah. Shannon O'Shea, oh, uh, Shout out to my boy Jeffrey D for, for stepping up uh, tonight and, and sharing his experience and wisdom. Um, you know, uh, I, that word gratitude comes up a lot when I look around in my life because I have a tendency sometimes to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous, how really fortunate I am uh, to have the relationships and the depths of the relationships that I have with you guys. And it almost seems like half of my Wednesday night crew is here. I see Kelly and I see of course, Clarkie and Scottish and, and Matt and Jesse. And uh, there's probably a few other guys hiding with uh, different names because they, they want to remain, re- remain anonymous. But um, my AA journey to the center kind of started back in 1974. Uh, my father, came to me and my two brothers around December timeframe, uh, and told us that uh, he's gonna be uh, attending uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings at night, after work, and that uh, we're gonna have to fend for ourselves for a little while. And we saw essentially an instantaneous shift, uh, if you will, in kind of the, the, the family dynamics at our house. And uh, it was a, you know, I've told a lot of you guys in this meeting that you know, growing up with my family was like um, you know, uh, trying to herd cats, you know, it was just kind of, uh, you didn't know what you're going to get uh, day by day. You didn't know if, if my dad was, uh, was going to come home after the bar, after work, uh, and be a violent version of himself, or if he was going to be a passive version of himself. So there was a, a high level of anxiety for the first 20, 30 minutes. And more often than not, um, when he did become uh, a little violent, uh, he had a tendency to throw shit around in the garage. And so uh, we needed to make ourselves scarce, especially at a young age like that. Um, one thing that I did uh, notice pretty quickly is that uh, uh, his, his demeanor had changed when he started going to meetings. He started bringing uh, other men to, uh, to the house. Uh, and introducing me. And I got to meet guys uh, like Ron Deer, uh, who is still my dad's uh, closest and dearest friend in Alcoholics Anonymous. My dad, fortunately for for himself and for the people in his life, has stayed sober since 1974. He is now 80 years old. And he's got the quality sobriety um, that I hope to have one day. He is a man of his word and, and a man of integrity. And he was taught by guys like Frank O'Rourke, Chuck Chamberlain, Paul Olliger, Joe Millard, guys that I got to know as a young kid, Lynn Wilder, um, Tom Whalen, uh, that taught my father that he can live a life uh, in sobriety without alcohol. And uh, a couple years after my my father got sober, um, my first experience with alcohol took place uh, on a train uh, bound for Taos, New Mexico. And our big Christmas trip with my two brothers and my parents and my grandfather uh, was to go ski in Taos for, for five or six days. And, and uh, uh, fortunately I got bumped up with my grandfather who was a small town physician in, in, uh, in uh, Fortville, Indiana. And he had two suitcases and he had one suitcase and he said, this is the suitcase uh, for the clothes. And this is the suitcase that's going to keep me warm. And he opened up the suitcase and it was full of boots, and, he said, uh, you're gonna get drunk with your grandfather tonight. I didn't know much about it and it didn't take much to get me where I was headed. Uh, but that instantaneous shift and change in the way that I saw things uh, and all of that anxiety, the travel anxiety of being a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old, whichever I was, um, I knew that I'd found, I'd struggled and, uh, he and I kind of snuck or I snuck drinks uh, with him for the for the next few days. And uh, I, I determined from that point on that um, I've got, I've got backup. And, uh, you know, maybe six months, a year later, uh, I, I was uh, getting ready to go to, uh, to class one day. And I think I shared this when I, I led a meeting a few, a few months ago. Um, my uncle had passed out on the floor in the, in the bathroom. And I didn't know it until he started moan because I kept hitting his head with a door trying to get into the bathroom. And I said, that was the first time I said, wow, my uncle's drunk too? Uh, he's also got this disease of alcoholism? And my dad said, my dad's sober 44 years. His dad was not sober, he was a drunk. He said, I've got bad news for you, kid. You are surrounded by alcoholics. So dad was an alky, mom was in the middle of practicing. Uh, uncles were practicing alcoholics. My grandfather was a practicing alcoholic. My other grandfather was a sober alcoholic. So all in li- uh, the likelihood of me be- becoming an alcoholic was pretty great. Um, and but I had to prove it to myself, and I, I got into action, as they say in the book, um, kind of the reverse uh, form of it. And I needed to to write my own story, and so uh, that, that's when the kind of the trouble began for me. And I won't get uh, too involved into what I did, but. Uh, of, of course, I got to know the, the local law enforcement um, pretty well. It was a really small town. I grew up in a in a somewhat rough neighborhood um, in Mission Viejo, just above the high school, uh, where we had you know a drive-by shouting at least once once a month, and um, you know we uh, we thought that uh, you know we we had it all figured out, and you know with a dad going to to AA every night. Uh, and then hanging out with his buddies all day Saturday and all day Sunday, you know, I, I had a, a pretty long leash. Unbeknownst to me at the time, my mom was kind of in the middle of her disease as well, and so she was scarce uh, throughout my high school years, which of course worked perfectly for me. And uh, my first uh, my first experience with Alcoholics Anonymous uh, uh, on my on my own two feet really came uh, in. 1984 1985 time frame when uh, I got into trouble one more time and, and uh, that sweet lady named Judge Pam Isles at Laguna Niguel, uh courthouse told me that um, she thought that I too had a problem with alcohol and that uh, that um, if I if I get a another um, alcohol related ticket uh, that uh, I was going to spend some time behind bars and she was true to her word and I spent uh, I don't know at some total of 10 or 11 days over the course of the next four or five years. Um, they thought they were humbling me when they had me cleaning up the trash on the side of the freeway. Uh, I, it was a great way for me to get some sun and, and, and to talk to some of my buddies and, and get a free lunch. Uh, but it came to a point in time where uh, Shannon needed to grow up. And so uh, I played uh, the game of, of looking like I was sober. I was attending meetings. My interest was much more, uh, of just kind of being uh, in a group of people that uh, had a lot of energy and that seemed to enjoy themselves, as Jeffrey was pointing out, that uh, that went out to coffee and laughed and had a good time. And it worked for a little while. Uh, and in 1986, I decided uh, uh, that uh, it was time for me to, to go uh, to college. And, I, and I, for somehow I, the reason, I, I chose a very small school up in northern uh, Utah, Utah State University. And I think the only real reason I chose them is because they chose me because I had such horrible grades in college that they let me in on on, uh, probation. And, uh, I was very familiar with that term probation. So I said, I'll take it. So, uh, long story short is I had to run my course. I had to get in trouble one more time. I had to have one more, you know, dealer that was mad at me, um, for me to kind of come to terms with the fact that, uh, I could no longer enjoy and control my drinking. Now I was telling a, a, another friend of ours a couple nights ago, I'll, I'll step back for a second. Uh, you know, around 1983, 1984, it was a, uh, a Super Bowl and uh, it was one of those cold nights in Mission Viejo. And uh, I was fully dressed up in my white, heavy cotton Irish sweater. and a pretty sheer I was wearing corduroys and, and loafers. And things got out of hand we all kind of stayed up till two or three o'clock in the morning, maybe and I finally fell asleep at six or, or got up at noon and it was about two miles away from my house. And, uh, I didn't have a car and I had no way to get home. So we turned that Shannon's walk of shame because it was about 90 degrees outside. And I, lo- I must've looked like a zombie, uh, on my way home. I mean, it looked like I was scaring children, like they were grabbing the kids to bring them in the house. Uh, I mean, Uh, I was not a vision for you by any means. Uh, I was always the one that got caught and um, I always thought I was the smartest on on every team I was was on, but uh, clearly I was not, I was mistaken. So uh, back to 1980, uh, January 18th, 1987, I was uh, uh, thrilled and and, uh, overcome by happiness that uh, I found out that the following Monday, the next Monday or the following day, uh, it was actually a holiday, and so I was that guy that, that um, you know, was there until the bar closed, and then was looking for lower companionship after the bar closed, and uh, I stayed up basically for 20 hours. And uh, January 19th, I went into a class in, in Utah uh, at Utah State University. It was a seminar class. There was probably 300 students in it, and uh, I was the only one wearing sunglasses. And I was sweating. And uh, the teacher came up to me at, at about two minutes before we were done with the class. And he said, I need to speak with you. And I said, sure. And so 250, 300 people leave. And, and he comes up to me and he says, uh, he says, are you doing okay? Are you sick? And I said, uh, yeah, I'm not doing that well. He said, you know, you're the only one that, that wears sunglasses in, in my class. Um, he said, you, sh- you know, you should probably check, check that out. You should probably get some help. And that was that pivotal moment, as Jeffrey was talking about. That was that, that priceless moment in, in, my, in, my, uh, in my early uh, career of, of, of uh, making mistakes. That you know maybe maybe I I've, I've run i run its course. My my uh, my time out there with uh, the drinking crowd and the using crowd had run its course. And so uh, January twentieth, nineteen eighty seven, is my sobriety day. And my first meeting that I attended. After calling another member of Alcoholics Anonymous, named uh, named uh, Frank O'Rourke, um, was in a health facility downstairs downtown, and uh, that was the most important meeting of, of my of my life uh, because you people you know uh, opened your arms, asked me how I was doing, gave me your phone numbers, and once again uh, reminded me that there is a solution and that there's people that actually do care about. Uh, the newcomer and wanting to help us and help me. And uh, that was really uh, the beginning of, of where I am today. You know, my journey has been, it uh, has had its ups and downs like all of ours have, especially a lot of downs before I got sober. Um, but ultimately uh, it takes what it takes to become who we are. Uh, I moved back down to Laguna Beach, tail between my legs, I think I had a 1966 Chrysler Newport with four tires from four different manufacturers. I had two dogs in the back seat. Uh, I'm pretty certain at that time, I had a warrant out for my arrest in Nevada because when I flatted outside of Las Vegas, I remember being really nervous that um, the cop was gonna run my number, my, my driver's license and he was gonna say, uh, you're going to spend a quality weekend or, or even more than that in, in Las Vegas. He didn't do that. The guy helped me with my tire. And I took that as, 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 as a sign that I'm, I'm going to make it to Laguna. And I did. And as Jeffrey talked about, the original Canyon Club that, uh, that a lot of us got sober in. I know that uh, JT is on here. Uh, a couple of you guys uh, remember that original Canyon Club. And it was the stinkiest, smelliest, uh, most obnoxious, uh, food, probably some of the worst food being served in South Orange County, but it was one of the most spiritual environments that I've come into contact with. And that's because the, the essential theme there, as, as Matt was saying earlier, um, is, uh, one alcoholic working with another. And that's what that whole Canyon club was about. I, uh, I, got involved in uh, the groups, I got involved in meetings, I was taught early uh, to pick up ashtrays. Fortunately, uh, most of us are non-smokers now, we don't have smoking in in meetings, Uh, and to be a service. And uh, being a really selfish, self-centered person, I couldn't quite understand how that would help me. But uh, I did it anyway, regardless of what my feelings were. And it seemed to pay off. And I got to grow a, a group of people around me that uh, became kind of the, you know, um, the original wrecking crew uh, back in 1987, 1988. You know, Steve Castle and Thomas L and, and Jeffrey and um, Tom Schultz. And uh, we came in contact with a guy named Tom V that, that, uh, that Jeffrey spoke of. And Tom America was a, an Irish kid from Sunnyside, Queens and um, he was probably eight or 10 years older than we were and he got sober young like we were and he helped us all kind of understand what was necessary what, what was required of us to keep our seat in Alcoholics Anonymous and he was one of those few guys that used to tell us and remind us that as we are going through today kind of some challenges that this too shall pass and that there's nothing in your life that happens, there's no experience, good or bad, that is going to create a need for you to drink. And uh, he was the type of person that was super positive, and very supportive. And he showed us how to have fun. And as Jeffrey said, you know, uh, that was one of my key demands. Um, I'm like, hey, you're gonna take me hostage? Um, I'm willing to do that, but. Um, if I can't have fun doing it, then I'm not going to be around here long. So, uh, Steve C and, and Thomas and, and Jeffrey and a number of those guys, as they said, um, we had a lot of fun. Some of it, somewhat not legal. Um, you know, uh, we were 22, 23, 24 years old. And, uh, you know, as I tell a lot of guys I work with, you can do absolutely anything you want to do in Alcoholics Anonymous um, sober, as long as you're willing to pay the price. You can speed um, and that might cost you a speed ticket and it might cost you insurance, Uh, but it also, it might cost somebody else, you know, their life. If you're going too fast, Um, you can steal, you can lie, you can cheat, you can do all those things, but they all come at some expense. And you people told me that I don't have to do that anymore. And then you guys exposed me to those steps. And i like to share, you know, my first sponsor, let me step back real quick. My first sponsor was a guy named Tom S., and Tom S. was the kind of guy that um, would remind me if, if I wanted to be treated like an adult, I had to act like one. And uh, the most uh, memorable experience I had with him took place at the Jolly Roger in downtown. And when it was one of our big, important first meetings that uh, we we're going to sit down and we we're going to carve up, you know, the, the, the next six months or to a year of Shannon's sobriety and what it's going to take for me to do it. And um, I showed up 15 minutes late. And the first thing he asked me was, um, uh, how come I didn't have a watch? And I said, well, I just don't have a watch. And he said, uh, people who show up on time are people who respect other people's time. And, uh, I personally, I didn't like his tone, but, uh, he, uh, he said, uh, if you want me to continue to sponsor you, you need to get a watch. And if you're 15 minutes late again, unless you've got a really good ex- uh, excuse for it, then you need to find a new sponsor. And so, uh, I was seriously thinking about finding a new sponsor, but I decided uh, that it was necessary for me to once again, follow direction and uh, do what you people were were telling me, which was uh, believe in the process, believe in the process of the steps. This guy had six or seven years sobriety at the time. I'd known him for 15 years. The guy taught me how to surf. everything he told me up until that point was pretty much spot on. So I gave him a second chance. But uh, he's actually still a really important person in my life, and and, and I'm fortunate to have just reconnected with him uh, lately. So uh, uh, fast forward to uh, uh, 1991, AA, uh, four years sober. I had a a job. I think I was getting paid about $28,500 a year, and I was – I I thought of myself as upper management. I wasn't really, but um, I told everybody I was, and – I had, a, uh, I had a Mustang 5.0, and I had a pair of z Cavaricis and a sweet pair of cowboy boots, and um, I thought I had going on. And um, Tom decides to, uh, to throw me a curveball. America decides to call him, throw me a curveball, and he says, uh, it's time for you to go back to school. I said, what do you mean go back to school? He said, well, um, you're a smart kid, and um, you deserve to get a degree in an education, and I don't see anything in your life that's going to keep you from doing that. And I said, well, yeah, but I've got meetings, I've got a girlfriend, I'm having fun, we're having a good time, you know. Um, I've got a studio apartment in Laguna, you know, I've got a couple bucks. Um, And he said, yeah, you'll have all those things if you go to school. You'll have all those things when you get back. And uh, he said, "Uh, you've got five days to come up with five applications to five different schools. And he was serious. uh, I didn't know what to do, so I did it, and um, once again, followed direction. Shame on me, but uh, uh, I did it, and I brought it back. And uh, one of the applications I filled out was for a small school up in up in Idaho. I don't know why I've got this tendency to, to move up to to the northwest, but I did. Yeah, my mother and, and her husband were living up in uh, Sun Valley, Idaho, at the time, so it was two and a half hour drive away. Kind of all made sense. Uh, and, uh, for some unknown reason, uh, they accepted me. And then I had to make a decision to go to school and guys like Jeffrey and guys like Steve, um, and guys like Thomas, um, and Bill told me that, uh, you know what, we're going to be here when you get back. And so I packed up all my things in a, in a 1988 Toyota Cressida and I went to school and, uh, but first, I told him, I said, the reason I didn't want to go to school is, is if, if I went to school now, I wouldn't graduate until I was 30. He said, well, how old are you going to be if you don't graduate? And that kind of much sealed the deal for me. Um, I hate it when people outthink me, which they do pretty frequently. So, uh, up in school, doing well. Uh, you know, For an O'Shea, I was doing well. I think I was getting B's. And uh, going to meetings and uh, staying in contact, I I would come down every three or four months, hang out with my buddies, play eight foot uh, basketball with with Jeffrey and and Steve and the crew, and uh, and then head back up. And uh, in 1993 uh, or 1994, uh, just before I was about to graduate, I got a phone call uh, from a woman who I couldn't quite understand and she was crying and sobbing. I thought it was my mother, but it was actually Tom Bereker's wife. And she was calling me to tell me that my sponsor had overdosed and died. And I saw some warning signs uh, about six months before that took place. Uh, I went with him out to Lake Forest when I was down here on on a break. And he went to go see a physician who refused to fill a pharmaceutical order for him, a pain medication. And I saw the desperation um, and his response to it, and how upset he got. And I asked him uh, what was going on, and he needed to tell me what's happening. And he told me he's just in a lot of pain. And I didn't push it any farther. I talked with a few guys that were close to him. I talked with his sponsor, Tom Whalen. I talked with uh, my good friend who ultimately became my, my sponsor, Lynn Wilder. And they tried to tried to uh, find out what was happening, but the secret was too great. Uh, and uh, that phone call from uh, from his wife uh, was once again, one of those moments in my sobriety where I had to make a decision. Uh, God either is or he isn't. And uh, losing a, you know, one of your, not only your best friends, but uh, kind of like an older brother, someone that uh, was there for you every step of the way, um, it really kind of shook me. And the thing that saved me, saved my sobriety, were the men in Alcoholics Anonymous, like Jim Stevens, uh, like Dan Cassis, like Steve Castle, um, guys who came rallied around each other and and reminded us that once again we'll get through this. We'll get through this, and uh, you know ultimately Tom's passing. Uh, I think it brought a lot of us closer together uh, because we don't want that to happen to one of us now. And losses is is, a, is an integral part of Alcoholics uh, whether it's through you know the disease. Um, taking one of us um, or, you know, just age or, or accident. And so uh, uh, I, I, you know, I, I had to, I had to come to terms with the fact that uh, I can get through it. I graduated college. Um, I came back here and I had an opportunity, a great opportunity, in fact, to, uh, to make a couple bucks really quickly out of the gate. And my ego wasn't ready for it. And I wasn't really capable of managing Uh, my ego at that time. And I made some bad mistakes. And uh, uh, let's call it judgment. And uh, I I had some poor judgment. And, uh, you know, Mark Twain says uh, good judgment comes from experience and and experience comes from bad poor judgment. And with, you know, at the time I had six or seven or eight years of sobriety. Uh, I took the easy way and that was to make some money. And it cost me having to stand in front of a a US federal judge in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, cop a felony plea on behalf of an organization, a company that I ran. And one person that showed up for me and my associate at that time, knowing how scared shitless we were, excuse my terminology, uh, was my father. uh, Because he knew how important it would be for him, being another alcoholic, To be there standing with us in that courthouse that day. And I paid the price for that financially, emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise. And that was a really important lesson for me to know that, uh, you know, my ego, even with a little bit of time, can get me into a lot of trouble. And uh, that was kind of one of those key moments in my life where I said, you know what, it doesn't matter what I have, I have nothing if I don't have sobriety. And I, and I, and I term sobriety as being aware, being aware of my actions, being aware of my intentions and my motivations, and being aware of whether or not I'm being selfish or unselfish. So, uh, you know, one thing that you you people have reminded me over and over again is that the best thing is in life aren't things; they're people, they're relationships. And you know, there's there's five or six guys on this meeting tonight that I know if I called at three o'clock in the morning with a flat tire in downtown LA, all of those guys would come and help me out. And that was not true back in 1986. Those guys wouldn't answer the phone. Um, they'd have more pressing things to do. And so um, you know I I am super grateful that you know to, to have those relationships. Those relationships take work and one of those things that we do is we get together on Wednesday nights, like a lot of our men's meetings, and as our friend Tracy talks about, we scoop it out together, and we talk uh, intimate in- information, and, and we talk about what's going on with us, and the fear, and the anxiety, especially what's going on in our world today. Um, you know, uh, we have to, we just have to understand that, you know, even though we might be seeking out God, um, or asking where He is. We have to remember that, you know, the teacher is usually silent during a test. And for me, I just have to look at the evidence and the evidence is pretty clear. If I do my job, if I do what you people tell me to do, if I show up for work, if I, if I go to meetings like I am now, if I talk with other alcoholics, and a lot of you guys are on here tonight that I talk to every day, and it becomes part of a routine. And if I don't talk to you every day, you call me and find out why we're not talking, and you hold me accountable. So, uh, when I stepped away from meetings, as as, as uh, our, our our chip taker, you know, shared tonight, uh, I stepped away from meetings for a couple of years and did it on my own, and um, I made a mess of things. I didn't get drunk. No one got arrested. Um, but, you know, I thought that, that I was smart, the smartest guy in the room for a little while. And, of course, I was the dumbest in the room. And ultimately, uh, I, I found myself back in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, when I moved to, to Bend, Oregon uh, in 2014, uh, I did not know it at the time. But in 2015, um, my mother uh, uh, lost her battle with cancer. And my mother was... Not only one of my uh, best friends, but she was also one of uh, my AA heroes. And she was also one of my Al Anon heroes. And she showed me with her husband, who's sober for 35 years, uh, what it takes to, to leave this earth with dignity. And, uh, you know, God sent me to Bend, Oregon for a reason because it's a six hour drive between Bend, Oregon and Sun Valley, Idaho. And I was able to drive back and forth probably 30 times over the course of three or four months. And what I saw there each and every time I'd go for three or four days was um, you hugging my mom. the the, the or, or women in AA there all the time, bringing food, bringing comfort. The women in, 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 in Al-Anon doing the same thing, um, just spending time with her because she was one that practiced uh, this program, as well as anyone I've come in contact with. And i like to share a story uh, with with some of you. You know, in 1984, she was about six months sober, and she was in downtown LA. And she used to share this in her story when she would would speak. She was in downtown LA, and, and she was having one of those really, really bad days. And she was overcome with the urge to drink. And uh, she was having a really bad time with her boss and a really horrible time with my father because they were, they were going through a divorce. And she made the conscious decision that um, she couldn't make it anymore. And she walked around a corner and she almost ran into my dad's best friend, Ron Deere. And Ron smiled and gave her a hug and said, let's go have lunch. And he didn't know it at the time but he just saved my mom sobriety. And if that's not a higher power, I don't know what is. And we get that if we don't give up five minutes before the miracle. As Jeffrey said, you know, we see miracles happen every day. Everyone on this call tonight is an absolute miracle because we instinctively want to feel relief, especially in times like these. I don't want to feel the uncertainty I don't, want to, I don't want to hear that they're only allowing 45 people in the Canyon club. What is that going to do with those people who show up late or the people who get shut up? I know that for my own sobriety, I have a tendency to be a little bit sensitive and I have a tendency to take things a little too personally. And so if I'm faced with rejection, especially on a meeting level that I can't go to a meeting when I need a meeting, then we're going to have to come up with some solutions and we'll do that together. And I think that it's imperative for all of us if we, do are, if we are faced with that situation is to pick up the phone, come up with another plan, bring people down to a park, we can do it. There are alternative ways uh, of holding meetings, but we're in uncharted territory right now and being sober is uncharted territory. And when I, when I talk to new people, you know, my good friend Donna's here tonight Uh, I know that he's had his struggles lately. Uh, It's real simple. You know, my friend, Bill, Scottish Bill is on tonight. Um, We're always talking one through 164. Those answers are in there. Uh, Do I want to make the effort to do it? Sometimes I don't. And the misery index goes up. And when I do, the misery index goes down. And when I'm picking up the phone and I'm calling, calling another alcoholic and telling them, you know, upset I am that my father didn't show up for my sixth graders zoom meeting uh, when I told him three times somebody says to me you know what I don't think he did it on purpose um I think you need to call him and and tell him it's okay he probably feels horrible and that's what I did I called him up and, and and the first thing he said to me is how horrible he felt that he missed his grandson's sixth grade graduation so um I bounced a lot. I bounce a lot of things off of you guys, and more often than not, it's really good advice, because the dangerous territory between my my two ears, um, yeah, I can get into trouble real quick. I was talking with Aaron, who's on here tonight, and I, I'm one of the fastest diggers I know. I mean, some people they do like one shovel full of freaking every two minutes. I'm like fifty shovels. I mean, I can get down deep real quick. If once again. I detach or disconnect from the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for me, that's working with another alcoholic. You know, it says in, in chapter seven, that one of the, the only th- real immunity, one of the things that's really gonna save us from that, that next drink is working with another alcoholic. And I, and I believe that, and, and I try to live that way. Um, you know, uh, one thing, I, yeah, I've got a couple minutes left. <clears throat> One thing I'd like to share in in some of my meetings is, is uh, there was this guy named Lynn W. A lot of you guys knew him, um, a very affable guy. And the first time I met Lynn was about 1975, 1976 in the women's meeting. And he had these god-awful red plaid pants with just the most obnoxious, annoying tie and just this horrible teal jacket. and. there was a, uh, a store in Newport center uh, called at ease. And I, and I think they sold him the worst shit that they had there because he wore it every week. But uh, that guy uh, would hold court with a guy <laughs> named Tom W. You know, and, and Dan S, Dan Schultes, if he's on tonight, I did. And a number of other guys. And uh, they would hold court at Thursday at, at the cottage restaurant in North Laguna. And if you did not, uh, have thick skin, uh, they would tear you apart. And so you had to have, you had to, be, you had to be on your game. Let's just put it that way. And Lynn was one of those guys that was old school AA. You know, he got sober uh, in 1965, I think. And, you know, he was very close friends with Chuck C., as my dad was, and as these old, old bastards, um, and Tom Whalen. And uh, they were really intimidating. But they always would remind me, if you continue to show up, we might make fun of you, but that's because we love you. And you should be worried if we're not making fun of you. It's because we're not paying that much attention to. So, uh, fast forward to, you know, 2012, and, and 2013, I came, uh, Lynn and I started hanging out and I asked them to be my sponsor. And when my mother passed away in Haley, Idaho, uh, there were five or six guys that called me each and every day. Uh, Jeffrey called me every day. Lynn Wilder called me every day. Dan Cassis called me every day. Steve Castle called me every day and asked me how I was doing because they knew, or they knew at that time that one of my best friends had just passed and I was having a tough time with it. And, uh, you know, Lynn and I worked a lot together. Uh, before we lost him three years ago. And he became a much gentler, softer person than he was when uh, when uh, I knew him as a kid or in my early sobriety. And that's because he started participating in our sister program called al And he dragged me up there a couple times. I really didn't want to go. vis used to be my be my, uh, my schooling with Tom Verick or wanting to go back to school uh, because I was, pretty sure that I knew uh, what, it, what it took to stay sober. And um, I'm now a member of, of the second program, program thanks to, to Lynn W. After Lynn passed, um, suddenly, uh, that, was, that was a really difficult time for me as well, because uh, I would talk with him, if not every day, uh, every other day at least. Uh, I, uh, I chose to pick a guy named Bob Metcalf as my sponsor. And I chose to, uh, to pick him knowing that uh, he only had a couple years left at best. And I asked him at uh, Laguna Coffee Company, I was sitting there with Steve and, and, and TJW. And I asked, I asked Bob, I said, uh, you can be around for a little while. He says, I hope so. I said, well, would you mind sponsoring me? He said, yeah, you bet. And uh, uh, after I asked him, uh, he started asking me if, if, if I would start taking him to doctor's appointments. And uh, long story short is, you know, uh, I had more quality time with my sponsor over the course of the next year, year and a half, then I had with any sponsor up until the time I was with Tom V uh, for 25, 30 years, and uh, those were moments that I'll never forget. And he showed me, as my mom showed me, uh, that you know, as long as we are surrounded by the program, as long as we are in sobriety, and as long as we are working with others, that There's absolutely nothing um, that can keep us um, from doing harm to ourselves, uh, whether it's emotionally or spiritually or otherwise. And he showed me that, uh, you know, even though he knew he only had a a short amount of time left, that um, his job was to work with others. And more often than not, he really, truly pissed me off (coughs) because he'd be talking with freaking newcomers almost the whole drive which I thought was totally selfish. <clears throat> I took it as an insult for a little while, but then I remembered who he was. Um, and he knew the only thing was going to save Bob Metcalf, uh, from Bob Metcalf, was working with you and working with me and getting out of, uh, of myself. And so, you know, uh, you are all examples of Alcoholics Anonymous, whether you think you are or not. You know, uh, I shared one Wednesday night, uh, one of my, my favorite little, sayings is uh you know we can all go to the gym and say we went to the gym but if all we did was go to the jacuzzi we're not going to get what we want out of the gym and we can tell everybody we went to the gym but uh we didn't earn the smoothie we didn't we didn't earn we didn't earn it um and if we do a little bit of work it's amazing uh, how our lives will change you know um i've got a book underneath my my computer right now and if you think the fourth step is hard in A, a the fourth step and al is 93 pages. The freaking book is like 300 pounds. I mean, I, I, I haven't moved it in like two weeks because I know it's so daunting and overwhelming. And because I sometimes I don't want to be faced with my reality and my responsibility to you. And, uh, you know, this is a learning, growing experience. And with uh, meetings like this, getting to know people like you personally as I have, You know, uh, I look forward to seeing you guys when we do meet again. And remember, there's absolutely nothing that happens in our lives today um, that can't keep us from the light of sobriety. That's what I have tonight. I appreciate you uh, taking the time listening.